Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Each week on the podcast, I interview parents who are raising multilingual children, Montessori guides who have taught in bilingual classrooms or who are themselves multilingual, and adults who grew up speaking two or more languages. We discuss the intersection between language and identity, how to find balance when speaking two or more languages in a monolingual environment, and all the joys and challenges that we experience along the way. Today, the podcast guest is me. I invited my good friend and former coworker Claudia to interview me about my education background and how I came to start Multilingual Montessori. Claudia was a podcast guest a few episodes back, linked in the episode description if you want to listen to that one as well. And in honor of my 20th podcast episode, I thought it would be fun to be in the hot seat myself. I asked Claudia to interview me, and she came up with some great questions for me about growing up in New York City, teaching English in Italy, how I discovered Montessori, my training in London, my Montessori teaching experiences, the master's program I'm finishing up, and of course, how Multilingual Montessori came to be. I hope you enjoy getting to know a little more about me and my journey. A few notes about our conversation. You'll hear us talk about AMI, which stands for Association Montessori International, the organization which conducted our teacher training program that was founded by Maria Montessori and her son Mario in 1929. You'll also hear us talk about AMS, which stands for American Montessori Society. You'll also hear us talk about the Children's House, which is a mixed age class of two and a half to six year olds in a Montessori school. The Children's House is also sometimes called a primary classroom. We use these terms interchangeably. We sometimes use the word guide instead of teacher, which is a commonly used term in the Montessori world coming from the idea that the adult's role is to guide children through activities in the classroom and in their development. Whether this is your first episode or you've been here for all 20 episodes, I so appreciate you listening to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Here's my conversation with Claudia. Hi, Claudia. Thanks for being here. Hey, Gabrielle. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Yeah, um, I'm so excited for this. So we're sort of turning the tables today. Um, I wanted to do this because I feel like I haven't talked that much about myself and my story and how I came to start Multilingual Montessori. And I thought you'd be the perfect person to have this conversation with. So Thanks for being the interviewer today. Of course, I'm very happy to be here. And um, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you too. We've been friends for what, almost nine years while well, coworkers and friends and yeah. Yeah, always it, fun to talk shop with you. Yes, definitely. Cool. Um, so this will be actually really exciting for me because We've worked together, we're friends, but I don't know if I even know your whole story. So I'm excited to dive in. Um, so I'll start and just ask you my first question. So um, 
we actually had a very similar trajectory in that we both came to Montessori after teaching in ESL classrooms. You were in Italy and I was in France. So I'm curious, what do you think drew you to Montessori? And do you think your experience teaching in Italy played a role in, in that? Um, yes, it played like a sort of indirect role. So I, after college where I did not study teaching or education, I think I took one education class. Um, I did a summer program to get certified to teach English as a second language to adults. And after that, I got a Fulbright to teach in Italy. So then I was there teaching English to um, Italian high schoolers for a year, which I loved. And after that experience, I was like, okay, I think I want to do this. That, that was so fun. I love languages. I love talking about English and English grammar and all that stuff. Um, so I started a master's program in teaching English as a second language to K through 12. And I loved working with kids. I did field work in two different ESL classrooms, one that was in Chinatown. So it was mostly uh, Mandarin and Cantonese speaking children. It was a kindergarten class. And um, so I had that experience. And then I was in a French English bilingual, I believe, third grade class in Brooklyn, which I also loved. Um, and I knew that I loved working with young children, but I just wasn't enjoying the public school teaching experience. And I think this is really common for Montessori teachers. And I went to public school as a child and I loved it. I had a great school experience. So I didn't know if it was the fact that it was like 20 something years later or the fact that I was coming at it from a teacher's perspective, but everybody seemed so stressed out. The teachers were so stressed out. They had to prepare kindergartners for English tests at the end of the year. You know, kids who had never been in school before and didn't speak English until they got to the classroom had to take an English test at the end of kindergarten. And I just like, I couldn't get on board with that, yeah. you know? Um, so I was having this crisis, like at the end of the first year of a two-year master's program where I was like, what do I do? You know, I know I love kids. I know I like teaching, but I don't think I want to go to go further into this public school machine, which I also felt a lot of guilt about, um, you know, yeah. like abandoning the public school system because those children need teachers, you know. Um, but so I was having this crisis and I was having lunch with a friend from college who was working in museum education. So she knew a little bit about, you know, education theories in general. And she knew that I had studied Italian in college and lived in Italy and loved Italy. And she was like, what about Montessori? Didn't Montessori start in Italy? Maybe you can go to Montessori, uh, go to Italy and, and be a Montessori teacher. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. I've heard, uh, I've heard of Montessori. <laughs> I know Montessori is from Italy. I've heard of it. Sounds great. Uh, and I didn't really know too much about Montessori at the time. I knew I, I had just, uh, you know, covered it in one of my grad school classes at that point. Um, so I knew of it as an early childhood teaching method, but I didn't really know anything about it. So I said all this to my mom, who also is a teacher herself. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Italy and study Montessori. And she was like, why don't you 
get a job in a Montessori school first <laughs> to see if you like it. <laughs> so <Nice. laughs> practical voice of mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, that sounds sounds like a good idea. So really it was like Labor Day weekend, um, right before the second year of my master's program was gonna start. And I applied for this job as an assistant at a Montessori school. And I dropped all my classes at the same time and I got the job. And wow. oh, prior to that, I had been working um in a toddler program at like a community center. So I had already worked with really young children also in addition to the master's program. So I knew that I liked really young children. So the, the first year I was an assistant in your classroom was with toddlers. Um, and I had never been in a Montessori environment before. Like I remember being totally blown away by the, you know, just the aesthetics of it. It was amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's how I came to Montessori. So really like the teaching experiences in Italy sent me in the direction of Montessori, mostly in the fact that Montessori was from Italy. It's like such a loose connection, but that's how I, that's how I got there. No, it's so interesting. I actually, I mean, right off the bat, I didn't know that backstory. That's really interesting. Um, <laughs> I love that. And also, I mean, just when you were talking, I, was thinking that, oh yeah, you're from New York City. You have been exposed to languages your whole life. You yeah. are from a multicultural place and you were in school in Chinatown when yeah. you were younger, right? So you've been exposed to like a lot of elements of multilingualism, multiculturalism, and then going through school and studying Italian and doing fieldwork in a French classroom. Like you have so much breadth of experience there it it's a loose connection sort of but um it really like falls into place in like a really um yeah tidy way <laughs> yeah I mean when I was younger I always wanted to speak another language I think probably because I was in school in Chinatown with a lot of peers who spoke Chinese you know Cantonese or or Mandarin to their families I always wanted that and we would do like a big Chinese New Year performance every year every class would do this like performance in this gala and we would always sing in Chinese and English um usually it was like man Mandarin and Cantonese and English and I didn't understand the words but I knew that you know other children did and I wanted that too so I um I grew up in little Italy which is next to Chinatown of course by the time I was you know a child and and in middle school it wasn't really Italian anymore um but I knew my mom's family was Italian and I knew that that was our background, but we didn't speak Italian. So I would always ask my mom, why don't we speak Italian? Well, her parents were from Sicily and they spoke the Sicilian dialect to each other, but not to their kids. And, you know, their kids were growing up. My mom was growing up in the fifties and sixties. And, you know, that just wasn't like, she heard words spoken around her, but she didn't really care about speaking Italian. And so I always felt like I wanted that piece. Um, so that's why I started taking Italian in college. Um, and I took French in high school, but I, I think growing up around multilingual peers and not being multilingual myself, I always wanted that as well. Yeah, that makes total sense. And that's funny. My, I had a similar experience as well. My mom grew up in the fifties and her mom spoke Italian, but my mom doesn't speak Italian and um, 
you know, my grandma always said it's because she wanted them to be American. Like it was, you know, the 50s and it was America and it was, you know, they came here. And, and so, yeah, that's really interesting. I totally, totally yeah. get that. Yeah. Um, that's great. Okay, cool. So, um, so back to that first year in the Montessori classrooms, um, we were both very fresh in Montessori <laughs> at that point. Um, I had one year of classroom experience and one summer of training and um, you hadn't done training yet. So what do you remember about that first year in the toddler classroom? What stands out? Was there anything that really surprised you? You'd worked with young children before, so, you know, it wasn't totally off the cuff, but um, was there anything that stands out about that first year? Yeah, um, definitely. So we had, I believe we had 12 two-year-olds. And I had worked with children that young before, but what really stood out to me about Montessori was the respect given to the child. Um, And you were so patient with me and explained things to me. You were so good with me. Like I didn't know what I didn't know, you know? Um, Yeah, it was a two-way street, Gabrielle. You were patient with me too. (laughs) Um, I do remember one of my favorite things about that year is that I got to do nap time. Um, you know, we didn't get that in the children's house. Of course, some of the children napped, but not all of them. Whereas in the toddler environment, we sort of had to like pretend to nap so that the kids would fall asleep and then we could get up and do things when they fell asleep. But, um, that was like a good, like 15, 20 minutes of like pretending to sleep, which was very restful. So I do remember that. Um, no, I remember that. Um, you know, I hadn't ever experienced like stand up diaper changes before. So that was new for me that like the child is more in control of the experience and more aware of what's happening. Um, I hadn't really potty trained children before, and I definitely learned a lot about it during that year. And also, um, well, one thing I remember is that our, our manager told me once that we don't like pull children or like move them from place to place. And, you know, uh, of course I wasn't doing it in like a violent way, but you know, you like pull a child's hand and like lead them somewhere. Um, And so that was new for me. And it was sort of like a light bulb moment that stuck with me about Montessori and about how we, you know, treat children with agency and we, um, you know, let them know what's going on before we just like pick them up and move them from one place to another. So I think little things like that really informed my work with children that first year. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some really standout moments for myself as well. Um, The stand up diaper changes for sure. That's something that um, I'd been a nanny um, and worked with small children and it had never crossed my mind. And the little girl I used to nanny for would hate having her diaper changed. And it's like, she's lying down. Like she has no idea what's going on. Like it was just like a total, like you said, like light bulb moment, like, oh, they should be the one taking control of this. Like it's their body, their agency. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, so after that first year, you went on to primary, a primary classroom Mm-hmm. And then you decided to go for your three to six training. Is that, is that timeline correct? Yeah. So I knew, I think I was, let me see how it happened. I knew after um, 
the my year in the toddler classroom that I wanted to do primary training, children's house training. Um, but I hadn't worked in children's house yet. So I think I was like, I first wanted to do the three summer program, but then I decided that it would be really nice to just do one year. But then I, um, I think I had applied and deferred for a year. Mm-hmm. So I knew when I started as an assistant in the children's house classroom that I was going to be doing my training the following year. Um, but I was really glad that I had that year with mm-hmm. the kids at that age. Um, and I think I decided I wanted to do that age because I was really interested in all the preschool academic stuff that happens. Like I was really excited about teaching children how to read. And mm-hmm. that was like one of the main things. I knew I liked that age group a lot. I liked the toddlers a lot too, but I was very excited about like all the academic stuff that happens in the primary classroom. Um, so yeah, I was really glad that I had that year under my belt. Um, it helped a lot in training, especially as far as the materials. I recognized a lot of the materials. I didn't necessarily know how to give a lesson on them, but I recognized a lot of the materials when I got to training. Um, and also just having spent time with children at that age was very helpful. I mean, some people in my training had never, um, worked with children before other than casually, like in a babysitting context or that sort of thing. Um, so it's of course not necessary to have before you do training, but I think it was really helpful to have that background. Yeah. Yeah, Because it is, it is quite different from the toddler room. I mean, you can certainly see like the seeds that are planted in the toddler community, how they grow into the primary classroom, but I, for one, walk into a primary classroom. I'm only toddler trained. Um, I've observed in primary classrooms and I'm just blown away by the materials and the lessons and all of the different things in that classroom. It's totally unfamiliar to me. So yeah, um, yeah it, I'm so sure it was much. really helpful. It was. It's like, there's so much that's going on in a primary classroom at any moment. I mean, it really felt like going into the big leagues, you know, from the top of the classroom where there's 12 children to, I think we had 22, 23 children in a pretty small space. Um, And I think I thought that I knew a lot more than I did when I started that year. And I think that the lead guide also thought that I knew a lot more than I did (laughs) (laughs) because I had already worked in Montessori for a year and I knew how the school worked and I knew like the basic, you know, approach and philosophy and how we treat children. But I didn't know a lot at the same time. So it was also a big learning experience for me about how the assistant can support the lead guide and also what the assistant needs. Um, I think it was really good for me to experience being an assistant in a children's house classroom to then work with my assistants when I was a lead guide. I think it was really helpful from that perspective as well, because I could remember how overwhelming it felt when the guide was in a lesson and needed that space to be protected so that she could concentrate on her lesson. But then there was like 20 kids doing a million other things in the classroom. Um, So it was good for me to have that experience as overwhelming as that sometimes was to remember that to draw on when I was, you know, working with my assistant as a lead guide. Yeah, that's such a good point. I I thought about that myself. Um, having the experience of being an assistant, 
I think is so valuable before you become a lead guide because you just have a totally different perspective <laughs> having been an assistant. So yes. yeah, that's really useful. So um, then you went to London, another global city like New York, um, yes. to do your training. I'm sure that must have been such a wonderful experience. Can you talk a little bit about training in London and did multilingualism play any experience, uh, any role in your experience there? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so for training, let me tell you my training city decision. So I wanted to do training in Italy. That was like the whole reason that I started working at a Montessori school to get back to Italy, live in Italy, do training in Italy. However, the only... AMI. So I, I wanted to do AMI training because we were working at an AMI school and that is just what people told me was a good training. And also doing like a very little bit of research, I could see that if I wanted to work internationally and not just in the United States, that AMI would be probably the best training to do um, to get a job abroad. So I had decided I wanted to do AMI training and the only AMI primary training is in, I can't even remember what city it's in, but it is two summers mm -hmm. and the summer starts in like the beginning of May and goes to the end of July. So mm -hmm. I probably like could have gotten permission to do that, but that wasn't really the experience that I wanted. Uh, so, it, you know, I would have had to like miss um, the end of the school year, which would have been two for two years, which would have been tricky to get permission to do if I mm -hmm. wanted to keep my job in New York. But also that wasn't like really going to be living in Italy, which is the experience I wanted. And then I heard um, from another, I think it was another guide at our school who had looked into that training. I heard that they made you handwrite your albums in cursive. Oh, wow. And I oh, don't know no. if that's true or not, but I heard that and I was like, nope. <laughs> um, not only because that sounds really arduous, um, but also because I was like, if that's their philosophy about that, they're maybe not going to be like cutting edge and like open to new things. And maybe right. that's not the kind of training that I want. I mean, all AMI training is like pretty much the same, but there's of course little differences with each training center. Okay, so uh, Italy was off the table. So then I was like, well, where else can I go? That's still a cool place to live for a year. And um, the guide that I was working with, the lead guide in the children's house classroom was, um, she had done her training in London. So I asked her about a lot about the training in London and she had loved it. And I had, you know, been to London a few times, loved London. It's so similar to New York. I thought that that would be a, a nice place um, to, you know, do the training in English. The, the training in Italy was, um, it was like in half in Italian, half in English with translation kind of thing. But I thought it would be good to do the training in English in London, but also have that like European experience. Um, so that's where I ended up going. I mean, it was really fortuitous. I had a friend from college who was doing a PhD program in London and just happened to need a roommate at the, around the time I was moving there. Like it, everything came together in a really nice way. Nice. Um, so one of the coolest things about the training program was that first of all, we had six trainers and 
three of them were, um, maybe it was five trainers and one course assistant and three of them were, um, British and three of them were not British. So, you know, our training team was very international, but the student body was incredibly international in our, um, so this training center has an evening and weekend program. And then they also have a three summer program in addition to the year round training. So, um, I think that a lot of the people who were living in London and working in London, um, and maybe also British, not necessarily, but they seemed to all go to the evening and weekend training because they could do that mm -hmm. while working in London and um, did their training in two years. So in my program, I think just by the nature of it, it attracted a lot of international students because um, we were people who maybe needed work visas or students, sorry, not work visas, but would have needed a work visa to work, but we were on student visas doing the program. Um, mm -hmm and didn't already have a home base in London. So that meant that there were people from all over the world. There were 23 of us and one person was British out wow. of 23 people, which was so cool. And That's amazing. We are from all, every continent except Antarctica. Like there was somebody <laughs> from every continent. Else. That's incredible. So there were four of us from the US and one of, and two of us were named Gabrielle, which is like a crazy coincidence because <laughs> Gabrielle's not that common a name, but it was like the two, two of the four Americans were named Gabrielle. So that was funny. Then there was someone from Brazil, so South America. There were, of course, a bunch of Europeans from other countries in Europe, um, including Iceland. I remember our trainers saying that they thought she was the first <laughs> student they had had <laughs> Iceland. And then there were two students from Africa, um, one student from New Zealand, um, and then quite a few from Asia as well. Um, it was, it was amazing. So that was really special, um, just to have, um, those perspectives, you know, and I would like speak in Italian to the Italian students. So that was fun, but really, I mean, I remember, so we got to take turns, you know, doing, presentations for the group and I remember um the woman from who's from Nigeria did the clothes washing um cl washing cloths did the washing mm -hmm. cloths practical life presentation for the group and it was like I mean it was like it was so beautiful it was like a dance like her watching her mm -hmm. wash the cloths was so beautiful and I you know it was like that was she was like bringing her culture to the experience so Things, little things like that was really special to have that diversity in the training group, which you can't um, plan on, you can't plan for, but it was, it was right. a really cool experience. Um, but you asked how multilingualism played a part. Um, the, the major way is that I had heard that there was a bilingual French English Montessori school. And before our first teaching practice, I went to our trainers and I was like, I want to be at this school. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I got, I got placed there. Like, and there were two, um, there were three French students and none of them, I think one of them later did get to do teaching practice at that school. But of course it would have made sense, more sense for one of them to be placed there. But I speak enough French, I can understand what the kids were talking about, but I really, really wanted to have the experience of being in a bilingual Montessori environment. So, because 
I don't think I said this before, but another thing that I had in the back of my mind when I went for training is that I knew that a lot of, a lot of Montessori classrooms were bilingual. So I thought that that would be a nice way to sort of blend my ESL background with Montessori. So when I was in London, I really wanted the experience of doing teaching practice in a bilingual school. Yeah, so. that's amazing. It's it's so true that, um, you know, the tie-in with Montessori and bilingualism is so, or multilingualism rather, um, is so organic and so um, natural. And they really do, you know, that emphasis is there in the approach and the pedagogy, how so many classrooms, Montessori children's house classrooms are bilingual. Um, I, I feel like that's something that not a lot of people know about Montessori. I mean, certainly not every class is bilingual, but um, many schools will have bilingual classrooms. And um, yeah, it's, it's so amazing that, yeah. that that's so offered. Yeah. And I, I think that in Europe, it's very common. I think more often than not, at least in non-English speaking countries in Europe or in, you know, countries in which English isn't the, the main language, I think a lot of them do have um, bilingual English and whatever other language classrooms. It's very common in Europe, less common here, but it's starting. It's starting to be more common in the United States too. So hopefully yeah. that will continue and grow. Hopefully. Yeah. It's such a gift. And I mean, thinking about being in New York where you're exposed to many languages, New York or London or, um, you know, many other European countries, you're exposed to lots of different languages. Um, but I think about middle America and how a bilingual Montessori school, you know, in a place that doesn't have that exposure organically um, could be so amazing. Okay, so after your training in London, you came back to New York. Um, and you worked for several more years in Manhattan before moving to Austin, Texas. Actually, I went directly from London to Austin, Texas. You did. Yeah. I, how can you forget oh, that? That was like a crazy experience. How can you forget that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, okay. That's actually jogging my memory now this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was probably the craziest decision I've made in my life. <laughs> So how, so how did you make that decision and what was that experience like? So I really wanted to stay in Europe, um, but I now I have Italian citizenship, but I did not at the time. And this was pre-Brexit, so I could have stayed in England with Italian citizenship, but I didn't have that at the time. Didn't know I was eligible for it yet. So I was looking at jobs all over Europe and they all did not offer work visas. And I was learning that um, generally to get a work visa, the job has to pay you a base salary that happens to be higher than most Montessori teachers are paid. So mm. it was quickly becoming apparent that staying in a Montessori school in Europe wasn't going to be a possibility. I think that I could have stayed and worked at a different kind of school or done a different job if that had been my priority. But I had just spent this year talking about Montessori and in training, you talk about these ideal environments and like what it could be. 
And I was so inspired by that. And I really wanted to have the experience of working in a big, beautiful, established Montessori school. So I can't I, imagine, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't imagine doing training and then not working in a Montessori school. Like you leave that experience so like invigorated and excited and enthusiastic and you just like want to do everything. Like even during training, it was like, because it, it was during the summer when I was doing it. So I wasn't working. It was like, oh, I just want to go back to work. I can't wait to go back to the classroom. So yeah, I totally get that. Like the idea of not working at Montessori after going through training would just be like, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I like wasn't, I, I wasn't willing to compromise on that. I, <laughs> as, as it, it turned out, I was willing to go anywhere <laughs> to work at this ideal Montessori school or what I believed was an ideal Montessori school. Cause I was so, I was just so inspired by that. And so revved up to like get into it and do the work. Right. So I, I cast a really wide net and I interviewed all over. I interviewed for so many schools. Um, and I even, um, interviewed at our old school in New York, but I wasn't ready to come back to New York yet. And I also, that was like a known quantity. I wasn't, I both wasn't ready to live in New York again because I wanted to live somewhere else, but I also knew what that teaching experience would be like. And I wanted to experience a different school. Um, so I, I was intrigued by the West Coast. I interviewed for some schools in the West Coast, um, but none of them quite fit my vision of what the school I wanted to work at was like. So then I found this school in Austin and I had never been to Texas in my life. Um, I didn't even really know a lot about Austin, although I talked to a lot of people about Austin and, you know, heard about how like cool and liberal it is and artsy and there's a big music scene. So that sounded great. Um, but re really it was about the school, this, um, school that I worked at Austin Montessori school had been around for 50 years. They had, they had just had their 50th anniversary wow. when I was interviewing, which blew my mind, you know? Yeah. And, um, I loved the people that I met in my interviews and the head of school gave me, sent me four videos. He tried to do a like Skype because this is like before the days of Zoom. He tried to do a, a Skype. The golden days. Right. <laughs> he, before we lived on Zoom, he tried to give me a Skype tour of the campus, but the Wi-Fi wasn't good enough. So he like sent me four videos of the campus and the campus was, is um, a series of one story houses on a street and each classroom is a house that they That's over crazy. the 50 years have gutted and like the backyards all connect, but each classroom, each children's house classroom has their own backyard with their own little play structure and their own vegetable garden and their own flower garden. And it was just so beautiful. It oh, was it's such a dream pictured. Um, and so different from New York, <laughs> different from New York. I really didn't know what to expect. And this was like really um, I overthink everything, but I really kind of tortured myself with this decision because I was, I, I couldn't go visit the school. I couldn't even go to Austin before I had to decide if I was going to accept the job or not. Um, and I knew that it was a little crazy to accept a job in a place that I had never been before. Um, but I was so inspired by the school that I was like, I'm just gonna see what happens. 
so um, brave of you not crazy brave. oh thank you thank you it was um you know and there was no culture shock almost none coming from new york to london but there was so much culture shock going from new york to austin i mean i had never i had a license but i had never owned a car before so things like that i knew that that was going to be hard and it was um but i loved the classroom so much i loved the school so much um I feel like this expression is overused, but it really was like a family. Um, I mean, the teachers that I worked with had been there for years and years and they sent their kids to the school and they had other teachers' kids in their classrooms and there wasn't this um, boundary of like, we have to keep work separate from personal life. It was like people really embraced that, um, that there was, there were blurred lines between like, friends and colleagues and and it was just it was really it was a beautiful experience and everyone was so invested in in the community the families were really invested I mean they go up to the equivalent of ninth grade so families weren't seeing it as a way to get into their next school they were seeing it as the destination um, which was really cool to work at from a children's house guide perspective it's really hard to keep um, six-year-olds if you don't have an elementary school and even if you yeah. do have an elementary school a lot of people will pull their children out for kindergarten which makes sense and and of course it happened there too but um but we did get to keep a lot of six-year-olds who were staying for elementary so that was really special um yeah yeah that sounds really really lovely and yeah I, I think going through training um you hear about the experiences of you know, sometimes it's even your trainers who have been working at the same school for years and years and years. And it's really hard to get a job at these schools because people just stay yeah. <laughs> forever. I mean, and I think, you know, that's a really big difference about New York as well. You're always getting new coworkers because New York typically isn't a place where people settle down. I mean, you know, obviously there are exceptions to that, but New York is something that people try to say they've done it almost, you know, and then they go back or, or find a, a more quote unquote livable city. I'm, I'm doing sort of a viral <laughs> here, but, <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so, so that's really great to have had that experience, like kudos to you to have that experience working in a school that um, was so established and felt like a family. That's, that's really great. And I'm sure has, you know, informed your practice as a Montessori guide. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a great experience. And I stayed for three years because I really wanted to do a three-year cycle. Of course, the end of my three years was the beginning of COVID. So I didn't get to finish those last two months of my third year, um, yeah. at least not in person. But, um, you know, as, as much as I didn't feel like Austin was the place that I wanted to live forever, even when I left the classroom, I was like, am I crazy to leave this beautiful classroom? Like, you know, it, it isn't a place that um, people, uh, it isn't a school that people leave, like you said, because it's great and they stay there forever. So it's hard to get a job at that kind of school. So I was like, am I crazy to leave this? But I, I had had my three-year uh, cycle, which I really wanted to see that through. And um you know, I was ready to come back to New York because I, I'm a city kid. I grew up in Manhattan, and <laughs> the subway, <laughs> and that kind of thing. But I'm really glad that I that I stuck it out 
living in Austin because I really um, valued that professional experience. Yeah, for sure. And of course, you know, COVID changed everybody's lives and the timing of everything just is crazy. So it's great that you did it though. And yeah, really brave of you and very cool. I remember when you were going through this vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To hear you say it all again, I'm like blown away. Like, whoa, you really did all that. I mean, it's crazy. I feel like I, I mean, that was, um, that was like five years ago. Wait a minute. It's 2022. That was five years ago that I decided to move there. And I feel like I was so much more young and optimistic, not optimistic, but like willing to take chances. And maybe the pandemic is part of that, that I'm like, I just want to be near my family. But um, I can't imagine making that decision now. So I'm glad that I did it then. Um, And in an indirect way, it led to me getting Italian citizenship, which was really cool. Um, So I, um, I moved there and I, I missed Europe so much and had felt such culture shock when I first got there and my friend was like, why don't you, instead of feeling sorry for yourself, (laughs) like, why don't you do something proactive and, uh, look into Italian citizenship again, which I had thought I had looked into and didn't qualify for, but turned out that I did so that I got to do all that when I was living in Austin, um, which happened to be because I went through the Houston consulate happens to be a lot faster than the New York consulate at the time. So that was a really random, cool experience as well that I think wouldn't have happened as might've happened, but not as easily as if I had been in New York. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're really good at um, seizing opportunities and like finding a way to make things like I don't know, like better than, than they might be like, that's great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, that's really cool. And now you are an Italian citizen, which is amazing. And you're going to Italy tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, I mean, this, this Austin Montessori school thing is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, of course I like <laughs> <laughs> stayed in touch with, um, with my, my colleagues there. And, um, well, so it's just such a special school. So every year they take their adolescents, their full cycle adolescence, which is the last. So the adolescent program is 12 to 15. So it's the equivalent of seventh to ninth grade. And sometimes they call it the middle school, but it's, um, you know, a traditional Montessori three-year cycle of adolescence, which is 12 to 15 year olds. So their that's their graduating class they don't have a high school yet maybe someday um and they take them to Italy every year and I think that the Italy trip came about because the school's founder um had I believe her husband was Italian or maybe she had Italian heritage she had a connection to Italy and um of course Montessori is from Italy so they would take the adolescents to Rome and Naples every year and that trip didn't happen for the past two years because of COVID, but it's happening again this year. And this year they invited me to go along as a translator and COVID protocols person. So, you know, I'm in charge of all the COVID testing and regulations and vaccination cards and all that fun stuff. Um, but that was a, a cool opportunity that I never could have foreseen um, coming about from a school in Austin, getting to go to Italy with this group of Montessori teenagers so that is coming up and I'm so excited about that it just you know it's really cool how these things some just come about yeah that is 
That is so cool. I'm, I'm so excited for you to have this experience and like totally full circle. It just goes to show like, you never know, you never know what's going to come up. Like yeah. it pays yeah. to, to do something bold and take a risk and yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what is your favorite thing about Montessori? And what is something that you think not many people know about Montessori or that people are surprised to learn about Montessori? Okay. Kind of a twofold question. Yeah. Um, I'm going to answer the second part first because it just came to me when you were asking it. I think that one thing that not a lot of people know about Montessori is that it did not start as an elite education system. It actually started with children in like an impoverished ghetto of Rome. And it started with children who um, were in, this is of course like the early 1900s, were in like a mental institution. Um, They probably had learning differences, but people didn't know what to do with children who had learning differences at the time. So they were like in in a mental asylum and they had nothing to play with but breadcrumbs that's how the story goes and and Montessori worked with these children and she worked with the children who um, were in this um, very poor area of Rome whose parents had to go to work every day and she was hired to like create a program to basically entertain or take care of occupy these children every day and so it really started as like for the people (laughs) almost Um, and it's become this elite education system but that's not what's at the heart of it and so I feel like Montessori a lot of times is kind of brushed off as like oh well you know we don't have money for that or like that's for like rich kids you know and uh, sadly it's it's become like that but um there's a lot of uh, grassroots movements. There's Montessori charter schools. There's Montessori public schools. There are, there's an organization called Educateurs Sans Frontières, Educators Without Borders, which is like Doctors Without Borders. And it's, you know, people who are Montessorians who go to, um, you know, countries that are, uh, you know, poor and don't have a lot of access to education like this. And they try to bring Montessori there. So it, um, there's a lot more than meets the eye, I think, to Montessori. And so I think that that also inspires me um, to try to get involved in um, Montessori accessibility and things like that, because it shouldn't be just for parents whose can, kids whose parents can afford, you know, private school education. But of course, that's what it has become because there aren't a lot of public programs. So um, that's something that I think not a lot of people know about Montessori and the fact that there are educators trying to work to make it more accessible and um, bring it to public schools. Um, And what's my favorite thing about Montessori? Um, Just the respect that it gives to the child. And it really, um, so much of it seems so natural and intuitive when you learn about it. Um, which I, things that I didn't think about before I knew them, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, why don't we do that all the time? Uh, why don't we treat children like that all the time? Um, I think that's what I, I like most about Montessori. 
Yeah, those light bulb moments where you just think like, oh, this is, of course, how it should be. This makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely had a bunch of those too. Yeah. Um, And another thing that I don't think, one more thing that I don't think a lot of people know about Montessori is that a lot of our, um, a lot of what we think about early childhood education and what we know and what we accept as normal or commonplace a lot of that comes from Montessori so Mm. it's not just isolated to schools that call themselves Montessori which side note that's another thing not a lot of people know that Montessori the name is not trademarked so anybody can open a school and call it Montessori anybody can sell a book anybody can sell a toy and call it Montessori so um, be aware of that but a lot of the things that are in public preschools or other types of early childhood education centers, a lot of those principles and ideas came from Montessori. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting to me as well. When, when I interviewed for my first job as an assistant in a Montessori classroom, um, the supervisor who was interviewing me um, was really lovely. And I was telling her that um, my parents are both um, teachers. My my mom's always been an elementary school teacher um, in public school. My dad became a teacher as a second career later in life. But um, we'd been talking about that. And then she started to describe some of the Montessori activities to me. And I thought, you know, I remember doing them. I said, oh, yeah, that I've done that. Or like, I remember this activity. And, and she was like, oh, are you a, a Montessori child? I didn't know that. And I was like, no, I'm I'm not, but you know, my parents are teachers and I guess, you know, the schools that I went to, um, had integrated some of that. So I was sort of familiar with what she was saying, even though I hadn't been a Montessori child. So yeah, that definitely, you know, was a memorable moment. And it's something that I've experienced as a teacher, um, you know, through my own teaching experience, just realizing how much of education comes from Montessori practice. Yeah. Also, I think one thing that's really cool is that, you know, Montessori at the time, so she did most of her work from like the 1920s to 50s, roughly. Um, That's like what the bulk of her method was designed it was revolutionary to even study young children at the time. So I think that was, that's really cool that she, um, you know, of course came at it from a very academic scientific approach. It wasn't that she was like, Oh, I just love spending time with children. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm sure she did, but she really came at it from a science. Yeah. With the doctors. Yeah. yeah. She was a doctor. Right. So she was like one of the first female doctors in Italy. Um, but I think it's really cool that, at that time, she was like, we should study children in a scientific way because they are the building blocks of adults. It's not that they're empty vessels to be filled. It's that they are constructing themselves. And that idea was very revolutionary at the time. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so great. I love talking about this stuff. I know. Me too. (laughs) You know, so many years later, it's still like, oh yeah. And you know, I don't, I'm not um, teaching currently, but I still like, I'm so excited to, you know, revisit all this stuff. It's really something that stays with you forever. Yeah. Yeah. So Gabrielle, you're getting your master's degree in child studies from Linköping University, which is in Sweden. Yeah. Um, 
can you tell me a little bit about that, your decision to go for your master's in Sweden and what that's been like and what you plan to do? Yeah. So I always wanted to get a master's degree. If you do an AMI degree in the United States, there's a possibility to link it with a master's degree, which I believe is what you did, right? So you like did your AMI Mm -hmm. training and then that those credits counted towards a master's in early childhood with a concentration in Montessori. Is that right? That's right. Yep. From Loyola University in Maryland. Yeah. So because I did my training in London, I didn't have that possibility. I think now they have a way to link that training with a bachelor's degree, but I already had a bachelor's degree. So there was no way to link it with a master's degree. Um, And uh, those of us who've gone through AMI training and, and probably AMS and other forms of Montessori training too, know that it's like the work of a master's degree, but um, outside of the Montessori world, nobody really knows what that is and and how much work that entails. So a Montessori diploma is what I needed to teach in a Montessori environment, but I was still interested in having a master's degree on my resume. you know, for both jobs in the Montessori world and potentially outside the Montessori world someday. So I had the idea of a master's had been in the back of my mind. And then I got Italian citizenship about three, three and a half years ago um, through my great grandparents, um, which then gave me the possibility to start looking at programs in Europe. Um, Some countries in Europe have programs that are free for EU citizens, some determine it based on your residency, some it's not free, um, some it's discounted. So there, every country is different, but I started kind of vaguely looking into that. Um, and actually it was you who told me about the Linköping University program. So there's this university in Sweden called Linköping University that um, has, I believe, four maybe five distance master's programs, which already, you know, existed before everything went online because of COVID. So I applied for this program in January of 2020, which was just, you know, crazy timing. Like who knew (laughs) everything was going to shut down and we were all going to be virtual, but it was designed as a virtual master's um, and it was completely free for EU citizens. So I had to just upload a picture of my passport and it was completely free, which like still blows my mind. Um, So I started that master's in August, 2020, and I'm at the end of it now. It in non-pandemic times, we were supposed to go to campus in Linköping, Sweden, three times the first year and uh, two times the second year. All of those were canceled or they were moved to Zoom, which was kind of disappointing. and but they have invited us for a farewell ceremony in June, so that's exciting. Uh, but the master's is in child studies, so it's a master's in social sciences with a focus in child studies. And I think that it complements, I feel like it complements my Montessori training really well because it's not a master's in teaching pedagogy or in child development, it's really looking at 
broad children's issues, uh, issues relating to children and childhood and children's rights and how children are seen and given agency or not given agency in all different areas. We um, covered, you know, anthropology, sociology, um, history of children and childhood. We had classes on children's rights, children in healthcare, children in education, um, children, parents, and family life. I mean, it really was like broad strokes, which was very cool. Um, and it was interesting to me to come at this from a very academic um, approach. So um, yeah, that's, that's the master's degree. It's been a really cool experience. It's been mostly um, other students, most of the students are European. They're not all Swedish. Of course, the program's in English. I should have said that in the beginning. I don't speak Swedish. So that was cool to be able to find this very specific program that was fully at a distance, um, fully online. Um, and yeah, we'll see where it takes me. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. It's exciting to you know, have a master's degree, but it's also exciting to think about possibilities outside of um, what I've been doing and maybe, you know, come at issues around children and childhood from a different perspective. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. When you were talking before how you said um, one of the most special things to you about Montessori is the respect for the child. And, you know, one of the things that blew you away in the beginning about Montessori was respect for the child. It makes a lot of sense that you would be going for a master's that's essentially about respecting children and their rights and, you know, all of the issues that that are around them. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really cool also because, um, you know, I think the Scandinavian countries in general have a reputation for being very cutting edge and forward thinking when it comes to early childhood education, education in general, and children and children's rights. So it's been very interesting to um, talk about all these topics that we do talk a lot about in Montessori um, from a completely different perspective and to see a lot of overlap, like you said. Yeah. Is um, Montessori popular in Sweden? Or do they have it? Do they call it by something else maybe? Or... You know, they do have it, but I think that because um, because early childhood education is free starting from age maybe three or four there, I don't think Montessori schools as a private institution are as popular, but I think mm-hmm. that a lot of schools draw on Montessori principles as well as other um, educational philosophies. So there's a lot of overlap. I mean, very child-led education. There's a lot of forest schools in Sweden and other Nordic countries, which is also like, you know, the natural world is a big part of Montessori. And um, there's a lot of like spending time in nature and um, child-led education versus teacher-led. That's big in the early years there, for sure. Yeah, that's that's so great. I think um, it is a huge principle of Montessori to spend time outdoors and to you know, really live in nature and experience nature. And, you know, the school that I worked in, that we worked in together is in the middle of New York City. So it's not the most possible thing. But during training, a lot of people would talk about, um, you know, farm schools and forest schools being sort of like linked with Montessori. So yeah, that totally makes sense. Are you one of the only people in your class that has a Montessori background? Or are there others as well? 
I think I'm the only one with a Montessori background. Um, there are some that have early childhood education backgrounds. So people that have worked in preschools or elementary schools, um, for sure. But I think I'm the only one with the Montessori background specifically. But um, one of my professors, when I was, you know, proposing my thesis topic having to do with Montessori, he told me that he went to a Montessori school when he was young in the 80s and he's Swedish. So that was cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Do you want to talk a little bit about your thesis, what it's about and kind of, you know, yeah, so it's, it's in its early stages. So we'll see if it even changes from what I have right now. But right now, uh, it's looking at um, virtual Montessori school, which is sort of a phenomenon born of the pandemic. But um, many of these virtual Montessori schools are hoping that it will continue after the pandemic. So I, it's a topic that really hasn't been researched much at all. It's been, there have been a few studies done about Montessori schools that had to go virtual in 2020, but the idea of a permanent Montessori school that is on the computer is very new. Um, So I'm interviewing teachers who have worked or are still working in a virtual Montessori school and talking to them about what it's been like for them, for their experience and what they perceive their students' experiences to be. Um, And thinking of it not necessarily as, you know, better than or even as good as um, brick and mortar schools, but, um, you know, really looking at it and saying, well, this exists, so we shouldn't just write it off as screens are bad for children, period but looking at it as this is a new phenomenon that's happening. So how can we make it the best that it can be um, for the children, for the families and for the teachers um, and the most Montessori, if you will, that it can be. Yeah, that's amazing. I think, you know, um, the flexibility it allows for parents is something that might come up a lot and also just geographical geographic location, you know, having access to more options, you know, there are a lot of benefits and it's something that um, I've been peripherally observing the conversation. Um, So I'm excited to hear your research and um, yeah, it's an exciting topic. It's a really interesting perspective, one that you firsthand have experience with having done virtual teaching for a lot of the pandemic. Yeah. So um, I'm sure you have a lot to offer there. That's exciting. Yeah. It's been really interesting. I mean, from a re- as, from a researcher point of view, I can't draw on my own experiences, but it's been really fascinating to see ways that my experience was similar to other teachers and also mm-hmm. completely different um, to other teachers' experiences. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast when I have my thesis published so I can talk about my findings. It's still in early stages, but it's been really interesting so far to, and just a really cool experience to look at um, Montessori from a academic researcher perspective. Well, I'd love to revisit it with you when you have done your research and have more to share. That sounds great. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Okay. So my last question is about this podcast that we're talking on. So, so what made you want to start the 
multilingual. <laughs> what made you want to start the multilingual Montessori podcast? I know it's a mouthful. Um, maybe I should give <laughs> it like a catchier title. Um, no. but I, <laughs> so I actually, so I started multilingual Montessori, the Instagram account slash website in summer 2020 because of you, actually. I had already, or I guess I had like these ideas had been swirling in my mind and I was thinking about ways that I could combine these two interests, multilingualism and Montessori, and, um, you know, maybe work with schools or work with parents. Um, and you said, well, why don't you start an Instagram account and you'll, you know, reach people that way. And I did. And so I, I spent, that was about a year that I was like creating content and like little info posts and things about Montessori and language learning and stuff. And that was really cool. And I got invited to speak at some online conferences, which was like a total, um, like totally pushing myself into an experience I hadn't done before. And then I found out that I really liked that. Um, but I listened to a ton of podcasts and I love interview pod format podcasts. I love hearing about different people's experiences. And I felt that I knew so many interesting people. Um, so many parents of bilingual or multilingual children, parents who weren't multilingual themselves, but were trying to raise their children multilingual. So many teachers that I had worked with or had, you know, been introduced to who speak multiple languages. So I also feel like everyone has an interesting story. You know, not everyone who's on my podcast is multilingual and not everyone knows about Montessori. So uh, this is why I sometimes wonder if I should give it I should have given it a broader title, but I already had the Instagram account. So I was like, it's just going to have the same title, but um, it isn't uh, only about multilingualism and Montessori necessarily together, but that intersection really interests me. And I feel like everyone has a story to tell and I love listening to other people's stories. So, um, and I love, I, I'm the kind of person that I like to have like the radio playing or something when I'm at home or music, but I like listening to kind of talk radio type things. So I put a lot of, a lot of podcasts on as I'm just like doing the dishes or folding laundry or whatever. And, um, that's a like form of media that I enjoy consuming so that I, I thought I could try to create it as well. And I um, had been thinking about doing it for a while, but kind of overwhelmed by the tech aspect of it. And then I had a friend who, um, she is an OBGYN and she started a podcast. And in her first podcast, she was like, I don't know anything about this, but I found this very easy free podcast software. So I'm just doing it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it too. <laughs> she can do it. I can do it. So that's how it came about. <laughs> Totally. I love that. That's so great. Um, not letting, you know, extraneous circumstances dictate what you're going to do. You had a great idea and I think you are totally spot on. I also love hearing about people's, um, backstories and, um, I like interviews as well, all types of interviews with authors and writers and, linguists and artists like it's great to to hear people's stories and certainly from listening to this podcast um I I always found that there were a lot of parallels between the people I met in Montessori and my own life I think you know there are some basic things that 
I've kind of come to realize are very shared amongst the community of Montessorians. So definitely listening to this podcast has been really like great to hear about people's different experiences and to hear about some of those parallels, but also to hear about people that have led wildly different lives um, from anything I've ever experienced and um, seeing what brought them to Montessori or what effect um, multilingual has had on their lives and relationships. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. So I'm so yeah. glad you created this podcast. Oh, <laughs> it's awesome. Thanks for being a return, my first returning guest, although I guess you're really the host this time. Um, <laughs> another thing I was going to say is that I didn't talk about this before, but before I became a teacher got into the education world. When I was growing up, I wanted to be on Broadway. I did a lot of theater and I went to a performing arts middle and high school. So I am super comfortable um, talking in front of a group. So I think that has translated very well into teaching. Actually, I often felt in the classroom like I was performing, not in a, not in a way that I mean, like I wasn't being myself or that I was being fake, but like you have to get into your teacher role, you know, mm-hmm. and you really have to like be calm and have that calm, relaxed demeanor, even if that's not how you feel inside and you have to yeah. be spinning a million plates in the air at once and, you know, singing songs. And of course, like being a Montessori teacher is a lot less performative, I would say, than maybe a traditional preschool teacher where you have to have like circle time and it's more teacher-led experience, but I think any kind of teaching is, is a little bit like that. So, um, and I loved singing with the children and I learned how to play the ukulele when I was in Austin. So I started playing the ukulele with the children. And so I loved that performing aspect, but I think that that, um, acting background has actually strangely helped a lot in Montessori, which is funny because I think that people who are quiet and introverted are actually also very well suited to be Montessori teachers because a lot of Montessori is being quiet and, you know, holding back and letting the child experiment and do things first. But um, for me, I think my performing background has actually helped a lot with Montessori teaching. And it has definitely, definitely helped a lot um, doing this podcast. I mean, I think that's like one of the reasons I wanted to do it. I like talking and like talking to people um, and also like presenting at conferences. It's kind of putting on a show. Um, yeah. In a good way. Yeah. That's something that definitely not everybody's comfortable with, but I feel like you really, yeah, that's a strong point for you and your ukulele. I totally forgot about your ukulele. <laughs> not, I forgot about it. Like just hearing you say that I had a flash vision of you doing videos and you played at my wedding like you're yes. amazing <laughs> you did my first dance on the oh, ukulele you were thanks. so talented that was so, so multi-talented. asked me to do that I mean thanks for trusting me with that <laughs> no it was amazing like I think everyone will remember that about my wedding like Aww. for years and years to come it's like <laughs> what did Claudia look like I don't know but <laughs> the ukulele was <laughs> No, it's so good. Um, that was yeah, a very great uh, classroom management tool that I did not have as an assistant because I, I mean, I, I knew a million songs that I would sing, but I didn't play an instrument that was portable. I kind of vaguely played piano, but I didn't have an instrument that I could bring to the classroom. And I remember you used to play the auto harp, which was great. Um, and I learned how to play the ukulele after my first year in Austin that summer. And then I came back and I 
had my ukulele for the second year. And it was like, I mean, I felt like the Pied Piper, like I would start playing the ukulele in like a chaotic moment. And everyone in the classroom would like quiet down and look. And, you know, it was like, it was really like, like a, like a snake charmer almost (laughs) sometimes like that, the effect that hearing an instrument has on young children is like really magical. Um, So it was really cool. I think that's such a, like a great, it's a gift for them. It's also like a gift for us. I think, you know, you mentioned learning to play for the kids at school. I also had not really been, I'd been exposed to music, um, but I didn't play an instrument. And then in training, our trainer played the auto harp, which is an instrument not many people are familiar with. But if anyone listening to this wants to YouTube auto harp, it's very cool. Um, And like, yeah, I learned how to play auto harp. I learned how to play basic guitar and it was all, you know, the seeds started from wanting to captivate the kids in my classroom and to expose them to live music because that's a really important part of culture. But, um, like I was so fulfilled through that learning experience as well. So yeah, yeah, it's, it really is amazing. Well, that is awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or anything Um, I didn't ask? No, I don't think so. Um, Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think it's a little funny how I came to be so involved in like multilingualism, not having grown up multilingual myself, becoming multilingual as an adult. Um, But I think that is also why I'm so passionate about it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I love languages and I see from like, an adult perspective, how they've been so important to me and given me so many opportunities and, and not just opportunities, but like insights into other cultures and and experiences. Um, I mean, I didn't talk that much about my year in Italy, but when I lived in Italy, I lived in Sicily and I didn't know anyone who was a native English speaker. I would speak English to the English teachers that I worked with, but I didn't know anybody who is a native English speaker. And socially, I was only speaking in Italian and I had just learned Italian five years before that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So even being able to have that experience was so impactful that I think that that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about teaching children multiple languages, because I can see how important it was for me as an adult, but being able to give children the gift of really being native speakers of more than one language or even not native speakers, even just being exposed to other languages at a young age is so special. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons that I am so passionate about language learning and and how it intersects with Montessori. And another thing is that Montessori is for everyone. You know, I feel like that if you know, if if you follow any Montessori accounts on Instagram or something, you'll hear a lot of that. You know, it's not about the materials. It's Mm -hmm not about the schools and the perfect classrooms it is about following the child's lead and everyone can do that and you don't have to be perfect when you're doing it I think that's also a trap that a lot of people can fall into when you see you know perfect Instagrams and of course it's it's just pictures you know they're real people behind that and it's I think important to not feel like you have to do everything to have a benefit from both multilingualism and Montessori and both together. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to be perfect. Even just a little bit 
is really impactful. Yeah. And it's a journey. I think, you know, you've said this a few times on your, on your, um, Instagram account, but you know, it's a journey, it's a learning process and there are always opportunities to change your strategy if something's not working or to learn something new and use it as a tool. Um, even if you hadn't been doing it before, like it's not going to be perfect from square one. And it's, it's a journey for your parents and caregivers. Um, and it's a journey for the child. So yeah, I think it's, it's great to make it fun and be forgiving, but (laughs) yeah, Yeah. that's great. Really. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for interviewing me today. It's been fun to, um, to not be the host this time to, to have someone else be the host and be in the hot seat. So thanks for doing that. (laughs) You're welcome. It was fun to, to talk with you. I, I learned some things I didn't know about you and, uh, (laughs) it was fun to revisit the things that I did. So Yeah, thanks for asking me to do this. Thank you again to Claudia for interviewing me and for being the host for this episode. You can listen to my interview with Claudia from a few months ago, where we talked about Montessori with toddlers, teaching English abroad, and more, linked in the episode description. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you left a five-star rating. It helps more people find the show. If you'd like to join the Patreon community to help keep the podcast running, you'll find the link to that in the episode description. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.